0: Ancient Greece. There's hardly a more revered civilization in Western history, and yet it's also notorious, particularly for a little thing called pederasty, the institutionalized love between an older man and a much younger man. It's one of those things that's often left out of polite conversation, kind of like that time your neighbor saw you naked and you just agree never to speak of it again. Well, today we are what was pederasty really like? Was it exploitative? Was it always even sexual? And was it really that different from the courtly love of later eras? In today's showcase episode, Ryan Stitt brings it all out of the closet. Ryan is the host of the podcast, The History of Ancient Greece, the show that takes a deep dive into one of the most influential and fundamental civilizations in Western history. And if you haven't checked it out already, you definitely should. And now here is a whole episode. For you to sample, Ryan tells the story of pederasty, situating it in a broad context, roving across Greek sex, love, prostitution, art, and more. That's what we're talking about in today's showcase episode. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Gillian Kenny, historian of women, sex and magic in medieval Europe. Hey folks, this episode of the History of Sex is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. Did you know that across the globe, men's healthy sperm counts have dropped by 50% in the last 40 years? When I heard this, I immediately googled it and found out, yeah, it's true. Believe it or not, 1 in 4 men over 30 are low in testosterone and have a hormonal imbalance. And symptoms may include low energy or fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, or even just having a hard time making decisions. And that is why I would like to make you aware of our sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Their fast, affordable, and always confidential at-home test kits help our listeners take a measured approach to their health from the comfort of their own home. And it's not just male hormone testing either. Let's Get Checked offers a whole suite of tests for men, women, and everyone in between. And they are even developing a test for COVID-19. That's right. In the near future, you will be able to get tested From the privacy of your home. They're CLIA approved, the highest ranking level of accreditation, all data is completely anonymized to ensure your privacy, and new customers even get 20% off by using our URL and code. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and enter the code history for 20% off of your purchase. I tried it myself, and it was actually pretty easy. My kit came in the mail. I took a sample in the morning, mailed it out the same day. And in less than two weeks, I could see my test results online. And then a nurse even called me for a personal consultation. And I never even had to leave my home. So get yourself checked for hormone levels or whatever is on your priority list. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and use our code history to get 20% off. That URL once again is trylgc.com slash btnewberg. Let's get checked.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 71, Love, Sex, and Prostitution. Looking at Greek sexuality tells us quite a bit about our own conceptions of sexuality and love, because we tend to focus in on whatever the preoccupations are that our culture has at that particular moment. And so we shouldn't think of Greek sexuality as operating in the same way as our own, because the Greeks did not identify themselves as either homosexual or heterosexual, as some term of social identifier, as modern societies have done. The reason that most scholars object to a notion of Greek homosexuality is because it suggests a particular sexual identity, one that is always attracted to other men, and one that we usually see as separate from heterosexuality. But, for example, most Athenian men might have had sex with both females and other males. In saying that, though, we also need to bear in mind that Greek sexuality is not really the same as our modern conception of bisexuality. In other words, they did not perceive sexual orientation in terms of a life choice. Instead, they regarded one sexuality predominantly as an episodic phenomenon, a pattern of behavior that belonged to a particular period of one's life, rather than as a permanent condition. Furthermore, they did not distinguish sexual desire or behavior by the gender of the participants, but rather by the role that each participant played in the sexual act, that of active penetrator or passive-penetrated. This active-passive polarization corresponded with dominant and submissive social roles, as the active-penetrative role, or the one who made love, called aphrodizazine, was associated with masculinity, higher social status, and adulthood while the passive role, or the one who was made love to, called aphrodisizastai, was associated with femininity, lower social status, and youth. The most widespread and socially acceptable form of same-sex relationship was that between an adult man and an adolescent boy, known as pederastia, or pederasty, which literally means boy love, from the Greek words pedos, or boy, and eros, or love. The word boy here is misleading because it was very much a teenage boy, and so it's not quite the same as what we would typically consider as pedophilia, for example. The age limit for pederasty seems to encompass, at the minimum end, boys of 12 years of age. To love a boy below the age of 12 was considered inappropriate, but no evidence exists of any legal penalties attached to this sort of practice. Traditionally, a pederastic relationship could continue until the boy was able to grow a full beard, at which point he was considered a man. And so the age limit for the younger member of a pederastic relationship seems to have extended from 12 to about 17 years of age. In Athens, the older man was the active partner, called Erastus, or the lover, and he was to educate and be a role model for his passive partner, called Eramenos, or the beloved. What the active and passive roles for pederasty meant, in terms of actual sexual activity, is controversial in itself. The artistic representations give us a rather graphic idea, but it's not something that is actually discussed in the literature. But that may very well be because they didn't need to talk about something that was common knowledge or that everybody knew. Regardless, there was clearly a definitive role between the active, older, and pursuing partner and the passive, younger, and pursued partner. There was also an educational component or a role of mentoring in these relationships, representing some kind of transition into adulthood, because the role of the eromenos was meant to be temporary. A number of Greek communities, including those in Boeotia and central Greece, Elis and Sparta in the Peloponnese, and the island of Crete, even made pederasty a rite of passage to adulthood. The ritualistic and initiatory origins of pederasty are not universally accepted by scholars, as the evidence isn't firm either way, but it seems to lie in the tribal past of Greece, before the rise of the city-state as a unit of political organization. These tribal communities were organized according to age groups. When it came time for a boy to embrace the age group of the adults and to become a man, he would leave the tribe in the company of an older man for a period of time that constituted a rite of passage. This older man would educate the youth in the ways of Greek life and the responsibilities of adulthood. The rite of passage undergone by Greek youths in the tribal prehistory of Greece seems to have evolved into the commonly known form of Greek pederasty after the rise of the polis. Greek boys no longer left the confines of the community, but rather paired up with older men within the confines of the city-state. These men, like their earlier counterparts, played an educational and instructive role in the lives of their young companions. Likewise, just as in earlier times, they shared a sexual relationship with their boys. There is a brass plaque from Crete dating to the mid-7th century BC that is the oldest surviving representation of this pederastic custom. Such representations appear all over Greece in the following century, and literary sources show it as being an established custom in many cities by the Classical period. The ancient Greeks, in the context of the pederastic city-states, were the first to describe, study, systematize, and establish pederasty as a social and educational institution. It was an important element in civic life, the military, philosophy, and the arts. Some Greek myths have been interpreted as reflecting the custom of pederasty, most notably the myth of Zeus, kidnapping Ganymedes to make him his cupbearer on Mount Olympus. In fact, the Agnes of Megara attributed the pleasure of Pederasty to the myth of Zeus and Ganymedes. In totality, more than 50 examples of young men becoming lovers of the gods can be seen in the corpus of Greek myth, which includes all of the Olympian gods, except for Ares, plus Orpheus, Heracles, Dionysus, and Pan. Likewise, Cretan pederasty as a formal social institution seems to have been grounded in an initiation which involved ritual abductions. Once a man, called the philitor, or lover, selected a youth, he had to get the blessing of the boy's father, who naturally had to approve him as worthy of the honor. He then enlisted the chosen one's friends to help him, and they carried the youth to his andreon, a sort of men's club or meeting hall. The youth received gifts and the felitor, along with the friends, went away with him for two months into the countryside, where they hunted and feasted. At the end of this time, the felitor presented the youth with three contractually required gifts. Military attire, an oxen, and a drinking cup. Other costly gifts soon followed. Upon their return to the city, the youth sacrificed the oxen to Zeus, and his friends joined him at the feast. He received special clothing that in adult life marked him as a klinos or famous and renowned. The initiate was called a peristastes or he who stands beside, perhaps because, like Ganymedes, the cupbearer of Zeus, he stood at the side of the philetor during meals in the Andreon, and served him from the cup that had been ceremonially presented. In this interpretation, the formal custom reflects myth and ritual. In contrast, an elaborate social code, rather than a religious or ritual pattern, governed the mechanics of the ideal Athenian pederastic relationship. It was the duty of the adult man to court the boy who struck his fancy. This is important because although Greek boys typically entered into a pederastic relationship around the same time that Greek girls were married, the boys had to be courted and were free to choose their mate, while marriages for girls were arranged and they had no say in the matter. Part of the courtship involved the Erastus giving gifts to the Eromenos, and many attic vase paintings illustrate this, and it was viewed as socially appropriate for the younger man to withhold for a while before capitulating to his mentor's desires. This waiting period was supposed to allow the boy enough time to ensure that his suitor was not merely interested in him for purely sexual purposes, but actually felt a genuine emotional affection for him and was interested in assuming the mentorship role that would be assigned to him in the pederastic paradigm. In fact, in order to protect their sons from inappropriate attempts at seduction, fathers appointed slaves, called pedagogoi, to watch over their sons. There will be more on the pedagogoi in future episodes. But on the other hand, though, according to the orator Eskines, Athenian fathers would pray that their sons would be handsome in order to attract the attention of men and be the objects of fights because of erotic passions. This was because these connections were advantageous for a youth and his family, as the relationship with an influential older man resulted in an expanded social network, and so some scholars consider that it was desirable for one in his younger years to have had many admirers or mentors, if not necessarily lovers per se. Typically after their sexual relationship had ended and the young man had married, the older man and his protege would remain on close terms throughout their life. Given the importance in Greek society of cultivating the masculinity of the adult male and the perceived effeminizing effect of being the passive partner, relationships between adult men of comparable social status were considered highly problematic, and thus these type of relationships usually had some sort of social stigma attached. This stigma, however, was reserved for only the passive partner in the relationship, who was considered to have lowered himself in status. According to contemporary opinion, Greek males who engaged in passive anal sex after reaching the age of manhood, at which point they were expected to take the reverse role in pederastic relationships and become the active and dominant partner, thereby were feminized or made a woman of themselves. There is evidence in the comedic plays of Aristophanes that derides these passive men and gives a glimpse of the type of biting social vitriol and shame heaped upon them by their peers. It is unclear how such relations between two women were regarded, but examples of same-sex female relationships do seem to exist as far back as the time of Sappho, as we mentioned in episode 19, though it's not clear if they were age-asymmetric or between adults. Plato's Symposium, though, does mention women who, quote, do not care for men, but have female attachments, end quote. In general, however, the historical record of love and sexual relations between women is sparse. The main literary sources for Greek sexuality are lyric poetry, Athenian comedy, some works of Plato and Xenophon, and courtroom speeches from Athens. There are also hundreds of vase paintings from the 6th and 5th centuries BC that depict scenes of sexual activities. In regards to Pederasty in particular, they typically are featured on black figure vases and show three prevalent scenes. The Aristes, stroking the Aromenes' chin while fondling his genitals, the Aristes presenting the eromenos with a small gift, sometimes an animal, such as a rooster or hare, and the two engaging in intercrural sex, which is a type of non-penetrative sex, in which a male places his penis between the partner's thighs, often with lubrication, and thrusts, in order to create friction. The ancient Greek term for this practice was diamyzine, which literally meant to do something between the thighs. This apparently was a common outlet for pederasty because anal penetration was seen as dishonorable and shameful to the one penetrated, because it gave the appearance of being turned into a woman, and because it was feared that it may distract the eromenos from playing the active, penetrative role later in life. Anal sex may be to depict it, but far more rarely. The evidence is not explicit and is open to interpretation. It is also not clear to what extent the depictions in art relate to real-life practices, especially in terms of the frequency of different types of sexual relations. Oral sex is likewise not depicted at all. In fact, anal or oral penetration seems to have been reserved only for prostitutes or slaves. The explicit nature of some images has led some scholars to question whether the Aromenos took pleasure in the sexual act, as he is never pictured with an erection. But the stimulation by the Erastes and the flaccidness of the Aramenos could just be symbolic of their roles, with one being the active aggressor and the other the passive receiver. Chronological study of the vase paintings also reveals a changing aesthetic in the depiction of the Aramenos. In the 6th century BC, he is shown as a young beardless man with long hair, of adult height and physique, and usually nude. As the 5th century BC begins, he has become smaller and slighter, barely pubescent, and often draped, as a girl would be. Some vase paintings show a man seated with an erection and a sexual partner either approaching or climbing onto his lap. The composition of these scenes is the same as that for depictions of women mounting men who are seated and aroused for intercourse. In many cases, it's quite hard to distinguish between male and female, and so while some scholars consider this a fourth type of pederastic scene, other scholars believe it's heterosexual in nature. Some scholars believe that Sparta was one of the first cities to practice athletic nudity and was one of the first to formalize pederasty. Megara cultivated good relations with Sparta and may have been culturally attracted to emulate Spartan practices in the 7th century BC when pederasty is postulated to have first been formalized in Dorian cities. One of the first cities after Sparta to be associated with a custom of athletic nudity, Megara was home to the runner Orsippus, who was famed as the first to run the foot race naked at the Olympic Games. In one poem, the Megaran poet Theognis saw athletic nudity as a prelude to pederasty, quote, Happy is the lover who works out naked and then goes home to sleep all day with a beautiful boy, end quote. In fact, there are many pederastic references among the works attributed to Theognis of Megara, which if you remember from episode 19, probably was a corpus of works and not compiled by a single author. In general, these poems treat the pederastic relationship as heavily pedagogical. The poetic traditions of Ionia and Aeolia also featured many who wrote verses on pederastic love, such as Anacreon, Alceus, Ibycus, and so forth, but they portray a version of pederasty that was non-pedagogical and was focused exclusively on love and seduction. From their poems, we learn that a lover might have several eromenoi over the course of his life and would customarily invite his current eromenos to dine with him. Although most of our evidence for male sexuality comes from Athens, that isn't to say that it couldn't be applicable to other poleis, but we shouldn't generalize it either to the rest of the Greek world. As usual with literary texts, they are evidence that comes from the elite, and elite men in particular, except for Sappho. What that means is that what we would consider as male Athenian homosexuality might have very well only been a part of elite Athenian culture and not the whole Athenian population. And so there is some debate among scholars about whether pederasty was widespread in all social classes or largely limited to the aristocracy. Certainly, it was connected to the intellectual and educational world of Athens, which was very much an aristocratic world. A homosexual union between males was acceptable only when it involved a younger and an older man and when it had an intended pedagogical dimension. Such associations provided the basis of aristocratic education in the Archaic Period and were institutionalized by the Symposium. In later times, they seem to have been regarded less favorably. Whereas earlier, black figure vases exhibit a preponderance of homosexual lovemaking, The red figure vases that had become popular by the end of the 6th century BC onwards more frequently depict heterosexual activity, so it seems that Plato's Symposium, which elevates homosexual love far above heterosexual love, as we will see, provides a misleading picture of Athenian sexual mores at the turn of the classical period. We should note once again that depictions of homosexual acts on vases are remarkably restrained. Anal and oral intercourse is practically never shown, although they both appear frequently on vases in heterosexual context. Although homosexual practice within certain limitations was regarded as normative by the Greeks, homosexual relations were not expected to replace heterosexual relations. Rather, they were intended to supplement them. In fact, those who committed themselves exclusively to homosexual acts were mocked and vilified, as we see from the abuse that was heaped upon such effeminates as they were regarded in the plays of Aristophanes. Plato's Symposium is one of the main literary texts that deals with male sexuality. While it tells us a lot about sexuality, it actually recounts a drinking party, or symposium, that was supposedly hosted by Agathon to celebrate his victory in a dramatic festival at the city Dionysia the night before in 416 BC. Some of the most famous Athenian men of his day were in attendance, including Socrates and Aristophanes. We talked a lot about symposiums in episode 48, but this symposium though, or at least Plato's portrayal of it, is quite different. Because all of the people at this party are hung over from drinking the night before, presumably at the city Dionysia, and so they agree that they can't handle another night of heavy drinking again. So instead of the traditional entertainment, the host Agathon opts for a more serious, philosophical discussion. Personally, I couldn’t think of anything worse than having to compose a great speech in praise of anything when I’m hung over, but this is what they decided to do. Anyways, Agathon has challenged the men to deliver a speech in praise of Eros the god of love and desire, and the son of Aphrodite, who we mentioned last episode. In particular, their speeches focus on the origins and nature of sexual attraction and love, which is usually the word translated for eros, but really it more so means passionate desire, and so we get from it the term erotic. But it was much more than that, as we shall see from Plato. In fact, Plato was always interested in the purest form of something in his philosophical dialogues, and so in order to understand Plato's Symposium more clearly, it is useful to bear in mind his theory of forms, according to which all of the phenomena perceived by the senses are imitations of eternal and perfect forms that alone have reality, and beauty is one of his forms. Also, it is important to understand that the Symposium is partially fiction, if not entirely so, like all of Plato's dialogues. The characters in the settings are to some degree based on history, but they are not accurate reports of words that were actually spoken, and they were very probably composed entirely by Plato. With those caveats in mind, let's begin. Each of the participants gives a rather lengthy speech in turn. First to speak was Phaedrus, a man who was associated with the inner circle and was a close friend of the philosopher Socrates'. He says that eros, or love, is a primordial force and in fact that eros is the oldest of the gods and is so powerful and so important that he makes men act virtuously. This is because the erastes, or the lover, would feel shame if he acted badly in front of his eromenos, or the beloved. So there is the idea that you have to act morally or brave in order to impress. He says, quote, I believe that the greatest good for a youth is to have a worthy Erastus from early on and for Erastus to have a worthy beloved. The values that men need, who want to live lives of excellence, lifelong, are better instilled by love than by their relatives, or offices, or wealth, or anything else. I mean the values that produce feelings of shame for disgraceful actions and ambition for excellence. Without these values, neither a city-state nor a private person can accomplish great and excellent things. In the next section of his speech, Phaedrus talks particularly about the military and says that even an army of lovers would be unbeatable as they would try not to look cowardly in front of each other. He continues, "...a handful of such men, fighting side by side, would defeat practically the whole world, because a lover could more easily endure anything else rather than his beloved seeing him desert his post or throw down his weapons. He would die many times over before allowing that to happen." He says that love has a very positive effect on us, because it makes us act virtuously, and sometimes we sacrifice our own lives for our loved ones. Phaedrus then comments on the power of male sexual relationships to improve bravery in the military. He would prefer to die many deaths, while as for leaving the one he loves in a lurch, or not rescuing him in peril, no man is such a craven that the influence of love cannot inspire him with courage that makes him equal to the bravest born. End quote. Phaedrus also says that even women will act bravely for their husbands, and in doing so he mentions the myth of Alcestis, who was willing to die for her husband Admetus. We describe this story as told in the play written by Euripides in episode 52. The most famous homoerotic relationship in Greek legend is that of Achilles and Patrocles, although Homer and the Iliad scrupulously avoid suggesting that it has a sexual basis. In fact, there is no evidence in the Iliad that the relationship was considered homoerotic by the poet, but later Greeks certainly considered it so, because these two men had a deep emotional bond and so they would become the role models for many ancient Greek hoplites. Heterastic relationships in several of the militaries of ancient Greece were not only condoned, but were regarded as contributing to morale, and various ancient Greek sources record incidences of courage in battle and interpret them as motivated by homoerotic bonds. Of course, the ancient Greeks did not condone adult men having sex with other adult men, so this raises the question of how many paydays or youths, there were in the armies, but it seems that Aramenoi, at the upper limit, were old enough to serve as soldiers. In addition to Plato, other Greek philosophers wrote on the subject of homosexuality in the military. The importance of these relationships in military formation was not without controversy, though. Xenophon in his Symposium, for example, took a quite different approach from Phaedrus's speech. While not criticizing the relationships themselves, he ridiculed militaries that made them the sole basis of unit formation. Quote, They sleep with their loved ones, yet station them next to themselves in battle. With them, it's a custom. With us, it's a disgrace. Placing your loved one next to you seems to be a sign of distrust. The Spartans make their loved ones such models of perfection that even if stationed with foreigners, rather than with their lovers, they are ashamed to desert their companion. End quote. Although the Spartan tradition of military heroism has also been explained in light of strong emotional bonds resulting from homosexual relationships, According to Xenophon, the Spartans abhorred the thought of using their relationships as the basis of uniformation because it placed too much significance on sexuality rather than military talent. They believed that to do so meant giving in to the demands of the body and that this type of lustful behavior was shameful because it was entirely based on physical beauty and not an attachment to the soul. Nonetheless, city-states that employed the practice in determining military formation enjoyed some success. The primary historical example of this can be seen in the sacred band of Thebes, a unit said to have been formed entirely of same-sex couples. They will play a prominent role in the 4th century BC, and so we will talk about them more in future episodes. Getting back to Plato's Symposium, the second speaker is a man named Pausanias, a very common name in ancient Greece, so don't confuse him with the Spartan general or the travel writer. Anyways, this Pausanias says that there are two types of love, and he calls them Aphrodite Pandemos, or Aphrodite common to the whole city, and Aphrodite Orania, or Heavenly Aphrodite. As we mentioned last episode, Aphrodite Pandemos was a deity who brought the population together in common worship, helping to strengthen the social bonds which united them. In Plato's usage, though, the ambiguity of the name has been exploited, and this Aphrodite is common in the derogatory sense of the word. Those who follow the common Aphrodite, or a baser kind of love, are in search of sexual gratification, whether it's with women or younger boys. It's common desire, or an immature kind of love. He contrasts the base lover with the more noble lover, or someone who follows the heavenly Aphrodite, in the form of pederasty, who loves boys old enough for intellectual engagement. And so this is an intellectual bond, and not just a physical one. Basically, Pausanias is implying here that love for a woman is not considered to be very high in his hierarchy, as it's considered a baser kind of love, because they are not capable of intellectual engagement. There is also a political dimension in Pausanias' speech because he then analyzes the attitudes of different city-states relative to homosexuality. He says that pederastic love was favorable to democracy and feared by tyrants because the bond between the Erastes and the Aramenos was stronger than that of obedience to a despotic ruler. He gives his examples of such pederastic couples, the Athenians, Harmodius, and Aristogiton, who are credited, perhaps symbolically, with the overthrow of the tyrant Hippias and the establishment of the democracy. By contrast, Persia is against pederasty because it is ruled by a tyrant, and thus it opposes the forms of love which engenders loyalty and friendship, so that they don't rebel against the ruler at the top. Which is quite interesting in the gender dimension, because the Persians were often represented by the Greeks as being effeminate, and so we see here the idea that those who don't practice pederasty are effeminate, whereas the Athenians, who do, are much more manly, which goes completely against the stereotype that we have today. Next speaks a physician named Eric Amakos. He says that love is everywhere in the universe, and is not only about human behavior, but also occurs in music, medicine, astronomy, and many other areas of life. He says that once love is attained, it should be protected, but he also said that there are two forms of love in the human body, one that is healthy and the other that is unhealthy. In regards to the former, he suggests that eros encourages sophrosyne, or soundness of mind and character, in terms of moderation. So if someone has too much sex, it is not good for him, and therefore he is engaging in an unhealthy form of love. Moderation was one of those ruling philosophical principles at the time among the elite, He also says that just as a good physician knows how to treat the body, a healthy lover knows how to moderate his desires. Next is the comedic playwright Aristophanes. He is one of the most entertaining and longest speeches, and is considered by some scholars to be one of Plato's most brilliant literary achievements. Other scholars believe that Aristophanes' speech, though, shouldn't be taken too seriously, because he was a comedian, and he was clearly drunk in the dialogue, and thus some believe it to be more comic relief and some outright satire, because he was, after all, responsible for producing some very surreal plays. Regardless, he doesn't give a philosophical explanation of Eros, but instead tells the ideological, or the original myth, of love. His speech is an explanation of why people in love say they feel whole when they have found their love partner. He begins by explaining that people must understand human nature before they can interpret the origins of love and how it affects their own times. Aristophanes says that the original humans had three genders. The male's origin was the sun, the female's came from the earth, and the androgynous, who were half male, half female, were from the moon. All of these genders were double-shaped and rounded, and each had two faces, one on each side of the head, and two sets of two arms and two sets of two legs that were all turned away from one another, and so they were twice the people that they are now. As spherical creatures who were extremely acrobatic, they were very powerful, but they were becoming too cocky and thought that they could challenge the gods. They cursed the gods and even tried to scale the heights of Mount Olympus, The gods grew concerned at what might happen if all the humans began to work together, so Zeus wanted to obliterate them with thunderbolts. However, the other gods persuaded him not to get rid of them, because then there would be no one left to sacrifice to them. And so Zeus decided to cripple them by chopping them in half, in effect separating their two bodies. Zeus then sent Apollo to split them in half. He twisted their heads around so that they could see their wounds, for their own presumptuousness, and their legs around to face the right direction. Then Apollo stretched their skin around their gaping wounds, pulled it together and tied it up, creating the belly button. He smoothed it all out, except for a few wrinkles near the belly button so that they would remember. So ever since then, human beings spend their life looking for their other half, because they are really trying to recover their primal nature. The women who were separated from women, and the men from other men, all run after their own kind. Those that came from the original androgynous beings are the men and women that engage in heterosexual love. However, human beings were dying off, because for all of Apollo's rearranging, he forgot to put their genitalia in the opposite direction as well, and they were hanging off their back ends, so that they can't reproduce. When he finally corrected this, children were able to be born. Aristophanes says for proof that this is true, go to any couple, and they would tell you that they would agree to be welded together, because this is their ancient nature, and they never again want to be separated. From this story... Plato, through Aristophanes, says that love is merely the desire and pursuit to be whole again. We are all looking for our kind of soulmate, if you will, the person who will literally make us complete. And so he says that Eros is one of the greatest gods, for he is aiding human beings to restore their ancient nature. Aristophanes ends his speech on a cautionary note. He says that men should fear the gods and not neglect to worship them, and warns that if human beings become too cocky again, Zeus would wield the axe again. This time, he would have them quartered so that they would find it harder to be whole again, as they would have to find three loves then. In some ways, this is very contradictory, as it appears to be an explanation for homosexuality or being heterosexual, but as we mentioned, most scholars argue that this was meant to be comedy, and that we shouldn't read into it as the origins of gay, lesbian, and straight sexuality. In fact, this is the only evidence for this myth, as told by Aristophanes in the dialogue, and so it's probably a legend, just like Atlantis that Plato made up for his own purposes. The host Agathon follows Aristophanes, and in his speech, he says that the previous speakers have all gotten it wrong, that love is the youngest of the gods, and he sees Eros as youthful, beautiful, and wise, and as the source of all human virtues. He says that the god of love is an enemy of old age, because love is danty, and loves to tiptoe through the flowers, and never settles where there is no bud to bloom. It would seem then that none of the characters at the party, with the possible exception of Agathon himself, would be candidates for love's companionship. Socrates, probably the oldest member of the party, seems certain to be ruled out. Agathon also implies that love creates justice, moderation, courage, and wisdom. Although it doesn't really say very much and is devoid of philosophical content, the speech that Plato puts into the mouth of Agathon is a beautifully poetic one fitting for a tragedian, and Agathon contributes to the Platonic love theory with the idea that the object of love is beauty. Finally, we get to Socrates, who delivers two speeches, really. First, he turns politely to Agathon and begins to examine his speech, using methods typical of Plato's Socratic dialogues. After questioning his line of thinking, he brings Agathon around to the idea that a person loves what he doesn't have, and thus love is actually poor. It's about going searching for the thing one lacks, and so the god of love must represent poverty. And he says, therefore, love cannot possibly be a god, but something in between human or divine, because if he were a god, he wouldn't lack anything. Eros, then, is a spirit that mediates between humans and their objects of desire. Love itself cannot be wise or beautiful, since it seeks wisdom and beauty, and therefore seeking what it lacks. And so love is the desire for those things. The Greek word for beauty, or kalos, is also the word for good and moral, so that doesn't mean you are searching for someone who is good-looking, but for somebody who is good and virtuous, and that is beauty. Chasing after someone for their physical beauty is an inferior kind of love, according to Socrates. The greatest knowledge is knowledge of the form of beauty which humans must try to achieve. This search for goodness and truth, which is what he says love is, is of course philosophy, so he is equating love and philosophy here. After the conclusions of this dialogue with Agathon that establishes the foundation for Plato's theory of love, Socrates then gives a second speech. This one is a reported speech that relays what he says he was taught by a wise woman named Diotima, on the nature of love. She basically has a Socratic dialogue with him, where he is the one who doesn't know anything, and she leads him towards knowledge. She tells him that love falls between knowledge and ignorance, and that love is the search for knowledge. She confirms that knowledge is one of the most attractive things there is. Then Diatima moves to the definition of the aim of love as the perpetual possession of what is good. Lovers are pregnant with what is good, and attain immortality through procreation, either intellectual or physical. There's been lots of discussion about why Diatima is a woman. One of the reasons that a lot of scholars think is because it's important to have a feminine model, because she actually talks about the process of giving birth. She says that women give birth to babies, but men give birth to ideas, and that you need love to bring it out, because that is part of the search for truth. Obviously, these are highly misogynistic beliefs, to think that women can't give birth to ideas, but only babies. But these were the ancient Greeks, after all. There is a lot of scholarly debate on various aspects of her speech, because it is very difficult to fully comprehend. Anyways, in conclusion, Diatima explains that men should make an ascent to arrive at the discovery of the ideal form of beauty. Men should start with a love of a particular beautiful person, or what she calls earthly love. The next step is to pass from this particular instance to beauty in general, and from physical to moral beauty. The fourth step is to attain the love of wisdom, and then from this, to the appreciation of the absolute and divine beauty, the form of beauty, or divine love. The speech by Diatima is the origin of the concept of platonic love, or a type of love that is non-sexual, referring to the divine love. It is named after Plato from his speech, though he never used the term himself. But it's sort of a misreading of Plato, because what Plato is talking about is a love that is more about the mind than about the body, not necessarily a friendship-type love. But Plato doesn't end there. He actually ends the dialogue with a comic epilogue. When Socrates has nearly finished his speech, Dionysus, who is to judge the speeches, arrives in the persona of a young and beautiful Alcibiades and who crashes the party, terribly drunk, and becomes jealous of Socrates and Agathon. Clearly Socrates at one point was his Erastes. The banter is all fairly light-hearted, though. They then ask Alcibiades for his speech in praise of love, but he declines, saying that his drunken ramblings should not be placed next to the sober orations of the rest, and instead he will give a speech in praise of Socrates. No matter how hard he has tried, he says, he has never been able to seduce Socrates. He actually says something that seems quite insulting. He compares Socrates to statues of Selenus or Marseus the satyr, who are both ugly. But he says that inside of them are all of these tinier statues of gods, and that's what Socrates is like. He may not be attractive on the outside, but inside there is something divine. So this sort of concerns this idea that Socrates has already given, that you don't look for somebody who is attractive on the outside, but you look for someone who has moral worth and goodness. Whereas Marseus charms with music, Socrates charms with words. In the speech, Alcibiades comes off as being absolutely in love with Socrates. He even says that no matter how hard he has tried, he has never been able to seduce Socrates because Socrates has no interest in physical pleasure. He said it was as if the positions were reversed, as if he were the Erastes and had to pursue Socrates. So Socrates doesn't fall into this normal pattern by the normal rules of Greek sexuality. And so we end up with this very strange depiction of Socrates as the one who is desired by the most desirable youth in all of Athenian society. We get multiple views in this dialogue about sexuality, and most of the speeches praise various versions of the pederastic model. Then, of course, we get Socrates' radical view that paradoxically doesn't involve sex at all, but reconfigures the paradigm to have a relationship between men that gives birth to ideas, which rejects our normal ideas of beauty It puts goodness and philosophy in its place as something really worth attaining, and this is what Plato says love is aiming for, and is what we should all aim for in our relationships. And so, moving away from love— Let's turn our attention to the more carnal, sexual desires that the philosophers would have disapproved of. First and foremost, the function of marital sex was procreation. So important was procreation that in Sparta it was acceptable for a husband to lend out his wife to another man for the purpose of impregnating her, as we discussed in episode 23. In other states, though, given the extreme emphasis that was placed both on virginity and on women's fidelity, it would have required much ingenuity and more than a little luck to conduct a sexual liaison with a well-bred woman. Perhaps for this reason, the image of a Don Juan type is alien to Greek culture, other than Zeus, of course. The exception to this rule is Alcibiades, who was much admired by both men and women, and who boasted that he had bedded and pregnated a Spartan queen. At the same time, there was open acknowledgement of the fact that male sexuality could not be contained by marriage. Xenophon in his memorabilia writes, quote, Certainly, you don't think men beget children out of sexual desire. The streets and the brothels are swarming with ways to take care of that. End quote. Both married and unmarried men were therefore free to engage in sexual intercourse with prostitutes or slaves. The famous myth of Pandora, told by Hesiod, defines women as a beautiful evil which men cannot resist, evidently because of their sexual appetite and vulnerability to female charms. These characteristics are made comic sport in Aristophanes' Lysistrata, which presupposes that an international sex strike by women, or more accurately, by wives, will bring about peace by reducing all of the combatants to another kind of impotence. The popular notion that men were slaves to their sexual appetites was balanced by the medical belief that women needed to have sexual intercourse for their physical and mental well-being. Although there were no doubt many husbands who were faithful to their wives, the fact remains that it was not only socially acceptable, but even assumed, that they would have had sexual relations with a variety of partners, including prostitutes, slaves, and other males in pederastic relationships. What was not acceptable was having sexual relations with another man's wife. In fact, the penalty for adultery was much more severe than for rape. That is because rape was regarded as merely an act of violence, whereas adultery involved the transfer of a woman's affections and in doing so made it difficult to determine whether her offspring was legitimate. Whereas rapists were only required to pay recompense to the husband, convicted adulterers could face the death penalty. If an Athenian husband discovered his wife in bed with her lover, he was permitted to take the lover's life with impunity on the spot, and the husband of an adulterous woman was required by law to divorce his wife. If he failed to do so, he could be deprived of his citizenship. Adulterous women were not permitted to attend religious rites conducted by the citizen body, and if they disobeyed, the public was free to do to them any form of violence short of killing them. We will talk about adultery more in a future episode, but Athenian society's tolerance of the male sexual drive came at a heavy price, one that was paid by the other half of the population, who did not enjoy such privileges themselves, and who were evidently expected to turn the proverbial blind eye. One wonders how much Odysseus said about his sexual escapades to his wife Penelope when he returned home after his 20-year absence, if indeed he felt obligated to say anything at all. It is a deep irony, running through the Odyssey, that Penelope is required to remain unwaveringly faithful to her husband when being persistently bullied into doing otherwise, whereas Odysseus' return is delayed some eight years by his cohabiting with the nymph Calypso and the witch Circe. Male sexuality was important in Greek culture in other ways as well. The Greeks were remarkably unabashed about the depiction of male genitals in art. Statues of naked youths in the guise of Apollo served as funerary markers. Herms, stone pillars with carved heads and phalluses, marked the boundaries of properties. Giant phalluses were borne aloft by Athenian virgins in Dionysic processions. In the performance of Comic Place, actors wore oversized phalluses made out of padding to draw attention to their sexual organs. It was also acceptable for a man to display himself naked before other men, particularly in a religious context. Male athletes practiced naked at the gymnasium. The word literally means the place of nakedness. And they also performed naked at the festival games. It was evidently for this reason that women were not allowed to approach any sanctuary where men were competing naked. By contrast, the Greeks exhibited primness in regard to the female body, even when it was fully clothed. For this reason, it was virtually impossible to praise a citizen woman for her beauty without at the same time impugning her chastity. Women in Homer are praised for their ankles, arms, and cheeks, but never for their legs, breasts, or butts. For instance, when the Trojan elders catch sight of the drop-dead gorgeous Helen on the ramparts in the Iliad, they comment only vaguely on her beauty. Even Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love, is described not as ample-bosomed or possessing juicy thighs and the like, but very discreetly as laughter-loving and golden. In certain Spartan rituals, though, girls were encouraged to appear naked before Spartan youths in what appears to have been a kind of civic-sponsored incentive to marriage. Still though, material that we would consider pornography, a made-up English word of Greek root that literally means the writing about or the painting of whores, or porne, was not regarded as having a corrupting influence, or if it was, so regarded by some individuals, there is no surviving discussion devoted to the subject. Occasionally, it even attained the status of high art. In vase painting, as we have mentioned, scenes of lovemaking were commonplace. Images of naked bathing women appear on the interior of red figure cups as early as the late 6th century BC, far earlier, incidentally, than the first sculptural images of naked women. The bather was revealed as the male drinker drained the cup, thereby lending a certain air of comic prurience. Pornographic literature existed in the Hellenistic period, but seems to have been limited to sexual-type manuals that enumerated the positions of heterosexual intercourse. To the ancient Greeks, masturbation was a normal and healthy substitute for other sexual pleasures, a handy safety valve, if you will, against destructive sexual frustration. This may explain why there are so few references to it in the literature, because it was such a common practice that it did not merit much attention. Nevertheless, it may well have been deemed, publicly at least, to be the necessity of slaves, lunatics, and other people considered to be lower down in the social pecking order. Elite opinion would have regarded it, literally, as a waste of time and semen, since it was one of the prime cultural responsibilities of the Greek male to further the family line and extend the oikis. One term for masturbation in ancient Greece was aniflaio, a verb that comedic playwright Aristophanes despairingly used to describe the Spartans as a wankers, in his comedy Lysistrata. The decidedly odd 4th century BC Greek philosopher Diogenes the Cynic routinely masturbated in public and defended his actions by saying, quote, If only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly, end quote. Interestingly, Diogenes attracted censorship not just for masturbating in public, but also for eating in the agora indicating perhaps that masturbating in a public place was regarded as no more serious a crime than eating in a public place. Another type of public sexual act can be seen in prostitution. Women's work was not generally valued by Athenian males, and as a consequence, the only form of female employment about which we have any detailed information is prostitution, because it was so common throughout ancient Greece. In the larger cities, and particularly the many ports, it employed a significant number of people, and represented a notable part of economic activity. Prostitution involved both sexes, though in different capacities. The majority of prostitutes were women, of all ages, though young men were also known. Both genders were for a predominantly male clientele, though as we will see, there were some exceptions. But first, let's discuss what we know about female prostitution, and then we will talk about the men. The female prostitutes of ancient Greece fell into three categories. The pornai were found at the bottom end of the scale. Their name comes from the verb pernemi, which means to sell, as they were the property of pimps or porno boscos, who received a portion of their earnings. This owner could be a citizen, as this activity was considered to be a source of income, just like any other, or the owner could also be a male or female medic. In the classical period, pornae were typically foreign slaves and were usually employed in brothels, located in red-light districts of the period such as the port of Piraeus or the Keramikos, the potter's quarter. It was far from being illegal or even clandestine though, as cities did not condemn brothels, but rather only instituted regulations on them and made them pay a special tax. For example, in Athens, the legendary lawmaker Solon is credited with being the first to institute state brothels with regulated prices. He was said to have purchased slave women and put them to work in brothels at prices which everyone could afford. He did this as a public measure to contain adultery. As quoted by Athenaeus, the Hellenistic poet Philemon praised him for this measure, saying, Solon, seeing Athens full of young men, with both an instinctual compulsion and a habit of straying in an inappropriate direction, bought women and established them in various places, equipped and common to all. The women stand naked so that you are not deceived. Look at everything. Maybe you are not feeling well. You have some sort of pain. Why? The door is open, one obel hop in. There is no coyness, no idle talk, nor does she snatch herself away, but straight away, as you wish, in whatever way you wish. Quote. Even if the historical accuracy of this anecdote can be doubted, it is clear that by attributing it to Solon, the classical Athenians considered prostitution to be a part of their democracy. As Philemon highlights, the Solonian brothels provided a service accessible to all, regardless of income. There are numerous allusions to the price of one obol for a cheap prostitute, no doubt only for basic acts. It is difficult to assess whether this was the actual price or proverbial amount designating a good deal. Regardless, one obol is one-sixth of a drachma, the daily salary of a public servant during the classical period, and so regular trips to the brothel for the average Athenian were quite inexpensive. And since making love to one's wife was really only meant for child production brothels provided men with a ready alternative. The range of what was on offer is described by the 4th century B.C. comedian Xenarchus in this fragment from his play, The Pentathlete. Quote, in our city there are, after all, very good-looking young things in the whorehouses whom one can readily see basking in the sun, their breasts uncovered, stripped for action, and drawn up in battle formation by columns from among whom one can select whatever sort one likes thin, fat, squat, tall, shriveled, young, old, middle-aged, full-ripened, without setting up a ladder and stealthily entering another man's house. For the girls themselves grab people and drag them in, naming those who are old men little father, those who are younger little bro, and each of them can be had without fear, affordable, by day, towards evening, in every way you like." Squandering one's money in the brothels was certainly not regarded as a respectable way of passing one time, but it was not considered to be anything out of the ordinary if a young man paid an occasional visit to a prostitute, and once again the activity would have been in within most men's financial means. The porni, no doubt, lived a miserable existence, and as you might expect, they were often forced by their porno boscos to make alterations to their physical appearance in order to make him or her more money. A 4th century B.C. fragment sums this up quite well. Quote, First of all, they care about making money and robbing their neighbors. Everything else was second priority. They string up traps for everyone. Once they start making money, they take in new prostitutes, who are getting their first start in the profession. They remodel these girls immediately, and their manners and looks remain no longer the same. Suppose one of them is small, cork is sewn into her shoes. Tall? She wears thin slippers and goes around with her head pitched towards her shoulder. That reduces her height. No hips? She puts on a bustle, and the onlookers make comments about her nice bottom. They have false breasts for them like comedic actors. They set them on straight out and pull their dresses forwards as if with punting poles. Eyebrows too light? They paint them with lamp black. Too dark? She smears on white lead. Skin too white? She rubs on rogue. If a part of her body is pretty, she shows it bare. Nice teeth? Then she is forced to keep laughing, so present company can see the mouth she's so proud of. If she doesn't like laughing, she spends the day inside, like the meat at the butcher shop, when goats' heads are on sale. She keeps a thin slip of myrtle wood propped up between her lips, so that in time she will grin, whether she wants to or not. End quote. Independent prostitutes who worked the street were on a next level higher. Besides directly displaying their charms to potential clients, they had a public advertising option too, as sandals with marked soles have been found which left an imprint that stated Akaluthi, or follow me, on the ground. They also used makeup, apparently quite outrageously. According to Theophrastus, respectable Athenian women did not open their doors when somebody knocked, but only slaves or prostitutes, the latter presumably to greet their customers. These prostitutes could either be medic women, who could not find other work and thus were forced into the trade by poverty, poor widows, or older porni, who had succeeded in buying back their freedom, which they often did on credit. Regardless of their status, some of them made a decent fortune plying their trade. In Athens, they had to be registered with the city and pay a tax. Their tariffs, though, are difficult to evaluate, as they varied significantly. Also with no surviving records from the time, we can only rely on literary evidence for the pricing of sexual services and for their levels of income. It seems that the average charge for a prostitute in the 5th and 4th centuries BC ranged from three obols to a drachma. Expensive prostitutes could charge a stater, which was four drachmas, or even more, like Lace of Corinth did in her prime. In the 1st century BC, the Epicurean philosopher Philodemus of Gadara, cited in the Palatine Anthology, mentions a system of subscription of up to 5 drachma for a dozen visits. In the 2nd century AD, Lucian in his Dialogue of the Itairae has the prostitute Amphelis consider 5 drachma per visit as a mediocre price. In the same text, a young virgin can demand a minna, which is 100 drachma, or even 2 minnas, if the customer is less than appetizing. A young and pretty prostitute could charge a higher price than her in-decline colleagues, even if, as iconography on ceramics demonstrates, a specific market existed for older women. And of course the price would change if the client demanded exclusivity. Intermediate arrangements also existed, as a group of friends would purchase exclusivity, with each having part-time rights. Musicians, acrobats, and dancers working at the symposia can also undoubtedly be placed in this category, as they often provided sexual services on top of their entertainment. They were probably mostly slaves, but a skilled artist, they would have been more expensive than the average prostitute. Aristotle, in his Constitution of the Athenians, mentions among the specific directions to the Ten City Controllers, five from within the city and five from the Piraeus, the Astronomoi, that, quote, it is they who supervise the flute girls, the harp girls, and the lyre girls, in order to prevent them from receiving fees of more than two drachmas per night. End quote. Sexual services were clearly part of the contract, though the price, in spite of the efforts of the Astronomoi, tended to increase throughout the period. The more expensive and exclusive prostitutes were known as hetairai, which means female companion, but is often referred to nowadays as courtesans. In contrast to pornai, who provided sexual services for a large number of clients in brothels or on the street, hetairai seemed to have been paid for their company over a period of time, rather than for each individual sexual act. Also hetairai did not restrict themselves to just offering sexual services. They were educated, which enabled them to take part in sophisticated conversations with the men. And so, Hatairai engaged in long-term relationships with only a few individual clients and provided not just sex, but also companionship and intellectual stimulation to them as well. In doing so, they sometimes accompanied their male clients to symposia, and we have had many images of them completely naked in this context engaging in sexual acts. These images are typically found on cups used for wine drinking, indicative that they were used at symposia. Etairai were able to control their own finances as well. However, their careers could be short, and if they did not earn enough to support themselves, they might have been forced to resort to working in brothels or working as pimps in order to ensure a continued income as they got older. They paid taxes and represented the only significant group of economically independent women in classical Athens. And for this reason, it has been said that the Hetairi were the most liberated women in Greece. However, it also needs to be said that many of them had a desire to become respectable and find a husband or stable companion. Typically, they often graduate to the status of pelaki or mistress, for many upper-class Greek men. Athenaeus remarks, Quote, for when such women change to a life of sobriety, they are better than the women who pride themselves on their respectability, End quote. And he then cites numerous great Greek men who had been fathered by a citizen and a courtesan, such as the Strategos Timotheus, the son of Conan. Still, though, there is no known example of a woman of the citizen class voluntarily becoming a Tyra. Sometimes, freeborn Athenian women of poorer families, who could not get married, since their families couldn't provide a dowry, or find a male... In order to be his mistress, had to resort to becoming hetaira, but this was very rare. Typically, though, hetairai were made up of medics and freed women, meaning they were former slaves. One of the earliest attested hetaira was Rhodopis in the early sixth century BC. If you remember from episode 15, Herodotus mentions that the prostitutes of Necrotus in Egypt were particularly alluring and especially endowed by Aphrodite, and relates the story of Herodotus. She was a beautiful Thracian slave and courtesan to Xanthus of Samos, who also owned the legendary fable-teller Aesop. At one point, he took her along with him to Nocritus, during the reign of Amasis, where she met Caruxus, the brother of the poet Sappho. Coroxus fell in love with her and purchased her freedom for what Herodotus describes as a vast sum. But she didn't love him, and he returned home to Mytilene, broken-hearted. Sappho later wrote a poem denouncing and mocking her harshly, accusing Rhodopis of robbing Coroxus of his property. After obtaining her freedom, she set up a brothel, built up a thriving business, and amassed a small fortune. As a measure of thanks, she commissioned expensive votive offerings to Delphi, which Herodotus claims to have seen himself. Another tale about Rhodopis was related by Strabo in the first century BC. He writes that as Rhodopis was one day bathing at Nocritus, an eagle took up one of her sandals, flew away with it, and dropped it in the lap of the Egyptian pharaoh, while he was in the middle of administering justice at Memphis. Struck by the strange occurrence and the beauty of the sandal, he did not rest until he had found its fair owner, and as soon as he had discovered her, he made her his queen. This is essentially the earliest variant of the Cinderella story, except in this case, Cinderella was a former courtesan who ran a prostitution ring and had a small fortune. The same story is also later reported by the Roman orator Aelianus in the 3rd century AD. Aelianus' story closely resembles the story told by Strabo, but adds that the name of the pharaoh in question was Samaticus. Regardless, it's evident that the story of Rhodopis remained popular throughout antiquity. Thargelia was a renowned hetaira in ancient Greece during the latter part of the 6th century BC. She was said to have been married 14 times. According to Plutarch, she was born in Ionia where she made her onslaughts upon the most influential men of her times. Thargelia was noted for her physical beauty and was endowed with grace of manners as well as clever wits. Plutarch asserts that Thargelia attached all her consorts to the king of Persia, referring to Cyrus the Great, and sought for the spreading of Persian sympathy in the cities of Greece by means of her clients, who were men of the greatest power and influence. She is said to also have lived for a long time in Thessaly, where she successfully propagandized the Persian policy. Arguably the most famous woman of 5th century BC Athens was Aspasia, She had been born in Miletus, and although little is known about her family, it is evident that she must have belonged to a wealthy family, for only the well-to-do could have afforded the excellent education that she received. It is not known under what circumstances she first traveled to Athens. Some scholars have theorized that she came to Athens with, with Scambonidae, the grandfather of Alcibiades, who was ostracized from Athens in 460 BC and may have spent his exile in Miletus. This theory mentions that Pericles then met Aspasia through his close connections with Alcibiades' household. Others have theorized that she moved to Athens, became a hetaira, and probably ran a brothel before she met Pericles. This is based on statements by Aristophanes, but we must be cautious here, as comedy is not a great source for actual historical events. Regardless, since she was a foreigner, and possibly a Tyra, she was free of the legal restraints that traditionally confined married women to their homes, and therefore was allowed to participate in the public life of the city. She eventually became the mistress, or Palachy, of Pericles and was renowned for her intelligence, oratory skills, and political astuteness. Plutarch, in his Life of Pericles, writes, quote, What great ardor or power this woman Aspasia had! That she managed as she pleased the foremost men of the state, and afforded the philosophers occasion to discuss her in exalted terms and at great length. Quote. Plutarch also says that she used to receive visits at her home from Socrates, accompanied by some of his pupils, in order to converse with her, and despite her immoral life, by the standards of Athenian women, other men used to take their wives along with them to listen to her speak. Some scholars have argued that Plato was so impressed by her intelligence and wit that he based the aforementioned character Diotima in his Symposium on her. Furthermore, according to Plato, Socrates, in what is admittedly a jesting frame of mind, claims that Aspasia taught him and other men, including Pericles, the art of rhetoric, and credits her with having been the true author of Pericles' famous funeral oration. Even if this was meant to be a joke, it's clear the reputation and smarts that she possessed. After divorcing his wife in the early 440s BC, Pericles lived with Aspasia until his death. He adored her, and it was said that he wouldn't leave home first without kissing her, and then again kissing her when he returned, which apparently was something unheard of at his time, as it created quite a stir. They even had two sons, and one was named Pericles the Younger. The degree of influence which she exercised over him is impossible to assess, but a number of Athenians seem to have regarded her role as an illegitimate intrusion into the male-dominated political system. She was the object of some vicious caricatures and comic plays, and her name has been found inscribed on a lead-cursed tablet. Don't worry, there will be much more on Aspasia in future episodes. Another famous Attira was Phreni. She was born at some point in the 370s BC in Thespia, but was expelled from the city not long after the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC, when the Thebans raised Thespia and expelled its inhabitants. And so she ended up at Athens, where she plied her trade. Athenaeus provides many anecdotes about her life. He praises her beauty and writes that she often let down her hair and stepped naked into the sea. She was a lover of the famous sculptor Praxiteles, and was said to be the model for his famous work called the Aphrodite of Canidos, which was the first nude statue of a woman from ancient Greece. The best known event in Fridae's life, though, is her legal trial. Athenaeus writes that she was prosecuted for a capital charge and defended by the orator Hyperides, who was also one of her lovers. Athenaeus does not specify the nature of the charge, but Plutarch writes that she was accused of impiety. When it seemed as if the verdict would be unfavorable, Hyperides removed Phrynes' robe and bared her breasts before the jury. Her beauty instilled them with a superstitious fear, because as Athenaeus puts it, they could not bring themselves to condemn a prophetess and priestess of Aphrodite to death. Athenaeus also provides a different ending, saying that she clasped the hand of each juror and pleaded for her life with tears and without disrobing. As you might expect, scholars can't agree on which one was the authentic ending. Regardless, she was acquitted. Praxiteles also made another statue using the likeness of Phryni. Pausanias says this one was made of solid bronze and was consecrated at Delphi. Athenaeus alleges that Phryni was so rich that she offered to fund the rebuilding of the walls of Thebes after it had been destroyed by Alexander the Great in 336 BC, on the condition that the words, Destroyed by Alexander, Restored by Phryni the Courtesan, be inscribed upon them. Another famous satyra of the 4th century BC was Naiera. Her career is described in a much-celebrated legal speech, titled Against Naiera, which has been ascribed to Demosthenes, though this is questioned, and was delivered by Apollodorus. She was brought to trial in the late 340s BC, accused of marrying an Athenian citizen illegally and representing her children as Athenian citizens. This speech provides more detail than any other about prostitution in ancient Greece, and specifically about the life of an accomplished satyra, She had been a slave prostitute in Corinth and became a favorite of a wealthy client who bought her freedom and set her up as his mistress. When he was about to get married and had no more use for her, he offered to let her buy her freedom at 20 minae, granting her a discount on her original purchase price, on condition that she did not ply her trade in Corinth. She raised the money by having one last rendezvous with all of her old wealthy clients and then came to Athens with the one who had contributed the most, a man named Phryneon. He introduced her to fashionable society by taking her out to symposia. Women who appeared at these gatherings were not considered respectable, and Naira's activities on these occasions were apparently more scandalous than most. According to her accusers, Phryneon used to have sex with her in front of the other guests, and at one particularly wild party, she was sexually assaulted by a large number of men present, including some of the slaves, when she was drunk and asleep. Not surprisingly, Naira left Phryneon and went to Megara, where she met Stephanos. She followed him back to Athens, and she managed to raise three children with him before her past as a hetaira caught up to her. Phryneon learned that Naera was back in Athens, and so he attempted to take her back from Stephanos, who claimed that she was a free woman, and so he had no right. So Phryneon took them to court. The arbitrators decided that Naera was indeed a free woman, but she must split her time between the two men, without any input from her. So in a sense, she wasn't really a free woman. Later, she would be brought to trial, accused of representing herself and her children as citizens. If she was convicted, the maximum penalty Naira faced was being sold into slavery and having her property sold. Since she was a woman, she would not have been permitted to speak at her trial, though she was probably present. We do not know the outcome of her trial, though, but scholars have commented on the weaknesses in Apollodorus' arguments in the speech. Regardless, an Athenian trial depended mostly on what the parties involved could persuade the jury to vote for. So we cannot say for certain that the lawsuit failed. Moving away from Attica, we also have information for Corinth, another port city famous for its prostitutes. Presumably prostitution there had the same structure as Athens, as we learned from Naera, in the form of brothels, independent workers, and high class attire. but they also had another unique aspect, in the form of prostitutes who were owned by the sanctuary of Aphrodite, as we discussed the last episode. In archaic and classical Sparta, Plutarch claims that there were no prostitutes due to the lack of precious metals and money and the strict moral regime introduced by Lycurgus. But as precious metals increasingly became available to Spartan citizens following the Peloponnesian War, it became easier to access prostitutes as men had something to pay them with. For example, in 397 BC, a prostitute at the Perioic Laconian village of Alon was accused of corrupting Spartan men who visited there. The spread of prostitution in Laconia wouldn't just stop there, though. By the Hellenistic period, there were reputedly sculptures within Sparta itself dedicated by a hetaira called Cotina, and a brothel named after Cotina also seems to have existed in Sparta near the temple of Dionysus by Mount Tigetus. This all correlates with the major changes and breakdowns of traditional Spartan society that we will come across in future episodes. The social conditions of prostitutes are difficult to evaluate. As women, they were already marginalized in Greek society. It is likely that the Greek brothels were similar to those of Rome, described by numerous authors and preserved at Pompeii as dark, narrow, and foul-smelling places. Certain authors have prostitutes talking about themselves, such as Lucian, in his dialogue of courtesans, or Alciphron in his collection of letters. But these are works of fiction. The prostitutes depicted here are either independent or attira, and they do not and they do not concern themselves with the situation of slave prostitutes, except to consider them as a source of profit. It is quite clear what ancient Greek men thought of prostitutes, though. Primarily they were looked at disprovingly for the commercial nature of the activity and the greed of prostitutes is a running theme in Greek comedy. The fact that prostitutes were the only Athenian women who handled money likely increased male bitterness towards them. An explanation for their behavior is that a prostitute's career tended to be short and their income decreased with the passage of time. A young and pretty prostitute, across all levels of the trade, could earn more money than her older, less attractive colleagues. To provide for old age, they thus had to acquire as much money as possible, in a limited period of time. Medical treatises sometimes provide a glimpse, although it is very partial and incomplete, into the daily life of prostitutes. In order to keep generating revenues, the slave prostitutes had to avoid pregnancy at any cost, Contraceptive techniques used by the Greeks, though, are not as well known as those employed by the Romans. Of course, anal and oral sex would have been very effective methods of contraception, and as such, they would have been favored particularly by prostitutes. In Aristophanes' wealth, prostitutes in Corinth are said to have presented their anuses to rich customers as soon as they arrive. It is interesting that the Hippocratic writers, who have so much to say on the subject of remedies for sterility, were silent when it came to contraception. Nevertheless, in a treatise attributed to Hippocrates, titled Of the Seed, he describes in detail the case of a dancer, who, as he put it, had the habit of going with the men, to whom he recommends that she jump up and down, touching her buttocks with her heels at each leap, to dislodge the sperm, and thus avoid risk of pregnancy. It also seems likely that the porni had access to abortion or infanticide. In the case of independent prostitutes, the situation is less clear. It has been suggested that they would have preferred daughters to sons. Girls could, after all, be trained on the job to become prostitutes, succeeding their mothers and supporting them in old age. And some prostitutes also bought slaves and trained abandoned children to work in their profession. We will talk more about contraception and abortion in a future episode. Greek pottery also provides an insight into the daily life of prostitutes. The representation can generally be grouped into four categories. Banquet scenes, sexual activities, toilet scenes, and scenes depicting maltreatment. In the toilet scenes, the prostitute frequently has a less-than-perfect body, with sagging breasts, rolls of flesh, and so forth. There is a Killix showing a prostitute urinating into a chamber pot. In the representation of sexual acts, the presence of a prostitute is often indicated by a purse, which underscores the financial nature of the relationship. The sexual positions most frequently shown were the leapfrog, in which the woman is frequently folded at the waist, with her hands flat on the ground and the so-called doggy style, or rear-entry position. Doggy style was considered degrading for an adult, and it seems that the leapfrog position, as opposed to the missionary position, was considered by Greek men to be less gratifying for the woman. Finally, a number of vases represent scenes of abuse, where the prostitute is threatened with a stick or a sandal, and forced to perform acts considered by the Greeks to be degrading, such as fellatio, or oral sex, sodomy, or anal sex, and sex with two or more partners simultaneously. In the utopian worlds of the Greek writers, there was often no place for prostitutes. In Aristophanes' play, The Assembly Women, the heroine Praxagora formally bans them from the ideal city. Quote, Why undoubtedly? Furthermore, I propose abolishing the whore so that instead of them, we may have the first fruits of the young men. It is not great that tricked out slaves should rob freeborn women of their pleasures. Let the courtesans be free to sleep with the slaves. End quote. The prostitutes are obviously considered to be unfair competition. In a different genre, Plato and the Republic prescribed Corinthian prostitutes in the same way as Attican pastries, both being accused of introducing luxury and discord into the ideal city. Conversely, in new comedy, prostitute characters became, after the fashion of slaves, the veritable stars of the comedies. This could be for several reasons. While old comedy concerned itself with political subjects, new comedy dealt with private subjects and the daily life of Athenians. Also, social conventions forbade well born women from being seen in public, and the plays depicted outside activities more often than not. The only women who would normally be seen out in the streets were logically the prostitutes. The intrigues of the new comedy thus often involved prostitutes and the plays of Menander are our most important surviving source. We will cover him in detail in a future episode. But in his plays, though, the courtesan oftentimes was the young girlfriend or love interest of a young male protagonist. In many cases, she was originally free and virtuous, but was reduced to prostitution after having been abandoned, captured by pirates, or so forth. There is also often a recognition scene with her real parents, after which she is freed and can marry the young man. In these plots, Menander created, contrary to the traditional image of the greedy prostitute, the concept of the whore with a golden heart, where this permits a happy conclusion to the play. As with its female counterpart, male prostitution in Greece was not an object of scandal. Brothels for slave boys existed openly, not only in the red-light districts of Piraeus, the Karamaikos, or the Lycabetos, but throughout the city. Males were not exempt from the city tax on prostitutes either some of the male prostitutes were aimed at a female clientele. In fact, the existence of gigolos is confirmed in the classical period. In Aristophanes' Plutus, an old woman complains about having spent all of her money on a young lover who is now jilting her. The vast majority of male prostitutes, though, as with the female prostitutes, were for a male clientele, and as with female prostitutes, fees varied considerably. Athenaeus mentions a boy who offers his favors for one obol, Strawn of Sardis, a writer of epigrams in the 2nd century BC, recalls a transaction for 5 drachma. A letter of Pseudo-Escanese estimates the earnings of a boy named Melanopos at 3,000 drachma, probably through the length of his career. Contrary to female prostitution, which covered all age groups, male prostitution was in essence restricted to adolescence. Pseudo-Lucian, in his dialogue called The Affairs of the Heart, expressly states, Quote, Thus her maidenhood, to middle age, before the time and the last wrinkles of old age finally spread over her face, a woman is a pleasant armful for a man to embrace, and even if the beauty of her prime is past, yet with wiser tongue, experience speaks more than can the young. But the very man who should make attempts on a boy of twenty seems to me to be unnaturally lustful in pursuing an equivocal love, for then the limbs, being large and manly, are hard." the chins that once were soft are rough and covered with bristles, and the well developed thighs are as it were sullied with hairs. End quote. And so the period during which adolescents were judged as being properly desirable extended from puberty until the appearance of a beard, the hairlessness of youth being an object of market taste amongst the Greeks. The most famous of these young male prostitutes is perhaps Phaedo of Ellis, reduced to slavery during the capture of a city. He was sent to work in a brothel in Athens, until he was noticed by Socrates, who had his freedom bought. The young boy then became a follower of Socrates and was so much respected by his peers that Plato named a dialogue after him, the Phaedo, which relates the last hours of Socrates' life. The existence of male prostitution on a large scale might seem to indicate that pederasty was not restricted to a single social class. If some portions of society did not have the time or means to practice the interconnected aristocratic rituals, spectating at the gymnasium, courtship, gifting, and so forth, they could all satisfy their desires with boy prostitutes, if they so pleased. The boys also received the same legal protection from assault as their female counterparts. A reason for resorting to prostitutes was partially due to sexual taboo, as fellatio, or oral sex, was considered degrading by the Greeks. In consequence… In a pederastic relationship, the Rastis, or adult lover, could not properly ask his future citizen Aramenos, or younger lover, to perform this act, and so he had to resort to prostitutes if he wanted this sort of sexual adventure. Naturally, there were cases of men keeping older boys for lovers, but they made sure to remove all of his hair. Although relationships with these sort of kept boys, called heteraikos wasn't considered socially shameful, being one of these boys was shameful, as it was generally the domain of slaves, or more generally, non-citizens. In Athens, for a citizen, being a heterikos had significant political consequences, such as the atimia or loss of public civil rights. Athenians over the age of 18 who prostituted themselves and were discovered were debarred from holding any executive or religious office and from addressing the assembly or council, although the law stopped short of depriving them of citizenship. Conversely, prostituting an adolescent or offering him money for favors was strictly forbidden as it could lead to the youth's future loss of legal status. If a citizen boy under the age of 18 engaged in prostitution, his father or legal guardian was liable for prosecution. As further punishment for the father, the boy in question was also released from the obligation to support him in old age, as the law otherwise enjoined on sons. This is best demonstrated in a legal speech by Ascanese, called the Prosecution of Tamarcus, during which the Speaker accuses Tamarchus of having been a prostitute in his youth. Aschines also distinguishes between the prostitute and the kept boy. He adds that if Tamarcus had been content to stay with his first protector, his conduct would have been less reprehensible. It was not only that Timarchus had left this man, who no longer had the funds to support him, but that he had collected protectors, proving, according to Ascanius, that he was not a kept boy, but a pepor numenos, or a vulgar whore. Consequentially, Ascanius won his case, and Timarchus was stripped of many of his civil rights, one of these rights being the ability to file charges against someone. Aeschines acknowledges his own dalliances with beautiful boys, the erotic poems that he dedicated to these youths, and the scraps that he has gotten into as a result of his sexual affairs, but emphasizes that none of these were motivated by money. A financial motive for sexual relations thus was viewed as threatening a man's status as free. The Greek reasoning is explained by Askines, as he cites that the citizen who prostituted himself or caused himself to be so maintained is deprived of making public statements because, quote, he who has sold his own body for the pleasure of others would not hesitate to sell the interests of the community as a whole, end quote. According to the 2nd century BC historian Polybius, a prostitute is someone who abdicated their own dignity for the desires of other, quote, a common prostitute available to the most dissolute presenting his behind to whoever wants it."
0: Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.